Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe and anthropology. Usually, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. But this episode, I've been to visit Washington, D.C., and the 2017 annual meetings of the American Anthropological Association. So for today, I'm Deacon Anthropology's roving foreign correspondent, and I've caught two of my fellow anthropologists in a lull in the typical conference melee of workshops, panels, meetings, and more meetings. All three of us contribute to the subfield of discard studies. And so we've taken a few brief moments to talk about waste, about the conference, and about anthropology. I'm David Giles, lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and I'll be speaking with Alana Resnick from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Chloe Armin from George Washington University. We join them now somewhere in the Omni Shoreham Hotel, Washington, D.C. So thanks for joining us here, uh, to those of you listening. And also thanks to Ilana Resnick and Chloe Armin, who've joined us uh, from UC Santa Barbara and George Washington University, respectively. So Ilana is an assistant professor at UC Santa Barbara and works on waste management and processes of racialization and scavenging. And Chloe is a PhD candidate at George Washington University and writes about the politics of risk and waste in post-industrial landscapes. Uh, and she has an article coming out in Cultural Anthropology next year, congratulations, Thanks. Uh, entitled It's Exhausting to Create an Event Out of Nothing, Slow Violence and the Manipulation of Time. So thanks for joining me and yeah, thanks for joining us. Too. It's my first podcast, pretty exciting. Great, it's my seventh podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we always start off with... Uh, We've got a range of people who listen. We have uh, we have honor students and grad students. We've got uh, anthropologists who are professional and just sort of brushing up in different parts of the field. And we've got people who know nothing about anthropology and have just stumbled across us on the internet. So we always start out with a sort of icebreaker, uh, which also sets the, the landscape up for us. And that's just how did you get interested in anthropology? And feel free to hit us with whatever weird, funny, or embarrassing anecdotes you like. <laughs> Do you want to start? You can go ahead. Uh, I, so I ask, I'm asked this question all the time, and I feel like I should have a better answer by now, but I came to anthropology kind of by mm-hmm. accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, before I went to college, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be an academic or a cinematographer, mm. and the two don't really speak to each other, like in obvious ways but I decided I was really interested in pursuing intellectual questions so I went to the University of Chicago and I had Mm -hmm. a friend from my high school who had gone there and was pursuing anthropology and so I was like okay cool Mm -hmm. let's check it out Um, but I fell in love with it and I think what's so like satisfying on a personal level about anthropology is that as far as I know and I haven't tried out that many disciplines but it's Mm -hmm. the only one where you are the tool and the Mm -hmm. only way to like produce knowledge is by creating relationships with other people so Mm -hmm. I just find that really enjoyable Mm -hmm. um, and really energizing and so I've stuck around and um, yeah that's so I'm here I have certainly found that lots of anthropologists are tools yeah (laughs) 
watching. <laughs> that's absolutely right. No, I, I kid. I kid. I no, kid. that's good. I'm going to use that. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, yeah. No, but like, um, so my grandfather mm-hmm. uh, went, well, he was at Chicago in the 50s in the School of mm. Sociology. Oh, he right, quit right. to do civil rights work. But I always think about, and I'm always asked about, because I'm an Americanist, like, what's the difference between anthropology and sociology? And sociologists have instruments, right? They have surveys, and they use statistics to come at their their knowledge of the world. And um, in anthropology, like, you are Mm, the instrument. mm -hmm. Like, you are the way in which knowledge is produced in your field site. And so that's, like, I mean, I guess that's kind of terrifying, right? But it's also really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what makes you a good tool? Why? Why? Because um, I, I mean, I think maybe a lot of us have had the same experience, you know, where we sort of already feel felt like we're almost born into being a people watcher somehow. Yeah. What what made you feel like a good uh, a good tool for anthropology? I don't know what the answer would be if I worked in any different place, but I work in a mm-hmm. neighborhood where before I was an anthropologist there, I was a first grade teacher, mm-hmm. and so I have really kind of natural and. Um, genuine relationships of like trust and interest with a lot of people who live there and Mm -hmm. so I think people felt safe talking to me about things that maybe they wouldn't feel comfortable talking about with outsiders and Mm -hmm. things just sort of coalesced from there Mm -hmm. Uh, the relationships came first and they came before the questions and they informed the questions so in my field site that has made me a good tool (laughs) (laughs) Uh, do you feel like I don't know I feel like as I I feel like I've I never thought of myself as, like, a tool. I mean, in other situations, but not in terms of field work. <laughs> but, like, I always felt like such a weirdo growing up. You know, like, I always felt like I was observing the world as much as I was participating in it. Like, I was right. never the one that would, like... Like, I never played sports. I didn't know how to play, like, on a playground. I mm-hmm. would just kind of, like, sit around and watch people. And that was probably, like, social anxiety at a small age. Mm-hmm. But, but ways in which I think we instrumentalize that awkwardness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think... I think I always felt, like, on the outside of general sociality, like, my whole Mm -hmm. life. So I think finding, like, a way to, like, yeah, use it in a way that was productive in which, like, you could feel safe in that space Mm -hmm. of being uncomfortable. People sort of expect you to inhabit Mm -hmm. the wall of a room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I identify with that a lot. Um, We did an interview with uh, Chris Shaw who described finding anthropology as, and he was quoting, uh, quoting someone else, but he said, he described anthropology as uh, finding anthropology as like settling into a warm bath. It was this, and, yes. and he, partly the the sort of liminality that he'd always felt, and then suddenly it was it was an, an accepted natural space for him to be yeah. in. You know, there's always a lot of social pressure of how to be part of like a normative framework, and mm-hmm. I think anthropology is wonderful in that. The methodology allows for that normativity to put it, be put into question, but then also like the work we do. What was most liberating for me was that things that were normal in kind of this colloquial way and mm-hmm. in the way that maybe I grew up were no longer normal within an anthropological framework. Like, by mm-hmm. destabilizing what's normal and what's natural, I felt like I could be more of a human being in the mm-hmm. way that mm-hmm. felt a bit easier to me. And I maybe also just seeing parts, like, seeing the world in a way that nothing is normal was mm-hmm. very liberating. And I, I feel like we do that for our students too. And you yeah. can sort of pick out which students also will go on to be anthropologists because you can pick out which students feel that sense of relief. Yes. Uh, when you say yeah. it's all right not to be normal. Yeah. Mm. Did that have anything to, you know, both your sense of uh, being instrumentalized or 
stop making the, the joke about being a tool, but, you know, the sense of being instrumentalised as a research, uh, a research process and the sense of sort of liminality or alienation, did that end up uh, uh, playing out in, in how you chose a project in that case? Yeah, I mean, so I work right now, like my main work is focused on grassroots opposition to a, an incinerator mm-hmm. that was proposed in the neighborhood where I've been working, you know, since the time I was an elementary school teacher. And I would say that because I feel like I came to the discipline through relationships, like I very much have come to my research question through them. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I consider myself an, an engaged ethnographer. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes the work I do has dual purposes, right? It's doing theoretical work that I'm hoping advances important debates in the discipline of anthropology. And it's doing political work. And oftentimes I'm doing research tasks that serve like an immediate political purpose for the for the activists that I work with so you know I would I would say that that holds true for me Mm. in the way that I came to my current project yeah yeah Yeah, I think I really res so the way I got to this particular project was just through reading like human rights reports about how Romani language is being used in the school systems in Europe to place Roma into schools for special schools for the mentally retarded, basically. This is what they were called in the 1990s. And, you know, I think my sense of, like, just, like, social justice was, like, totally shocked when I was reading these things that was happening, you know, not... This was, like, in the early 2000s, so less than a decade before. And I ended up going to Bulgaria for the first time in 2003. And, I mean, maybe there is this personal relationship to feeling... to being an outsider and realizing, like what it means to be to feel like an outsider versus being racialized and segregated and discriminated as one systematically and so this kind of i mean you know the systemic racism i saw was something like i never had to face growing up you know Mm. and there was no way in which that was familiar to me because i am not the subject of that Mm -hmm. but i think i felt a lot of affinity and compulsion to like work for that cause because Mm. I mean I don't know I think I just had a very strong sense of like that people should be treated you know equally and Mm. that and this dehumanization that I witnessed was so appalling that I think that's what captivated me more than anthropology I was never very academic until I went to grads. I went in college. I mean, I read books and stuff, or I pretended to. But then, <laughs> after college, I was a like food stamp welfare worker in New York, and I just loved the human interaction and the idea that I was doing something very tangible. And I soon got burned out, and I went to grad school. But I think what drove me was to always the social justice element, mm-hmm. and not the other part. Um, but I, and I think mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think I struggle. That's always my struggle. Like I got very into theory while in grad school, and then very disillusioned by the kind of theory that I was engaging with after the mm-hmm. field. And so I've been really thinking about what is theory and how does it derive from the field state directly, mm-hmm. and how to move beyond like the canon that we were kind of trained in from you know even from undergrad. This mm. and so that's. That's an ongoing struggle. Mm, absolutely. I, you know, I, I've, I've been through different phases myself uh, of just really loving the thick, the dense, the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, the French, um, the German, mm-hmm. and sort of nerding out on it. And then I, I feel like the paper that I wrote for this year's panel was way back to basics, and I certainly found myself theorising, but not, you know, I, I found myself abandoning a lot of words I think I would have used uh, two and three years ago, and just and using 
uh, you know, using the word people instead of the word subjectivity and that sort of thing because I was thinking about uh, relationships with the people I was working with as I was, as I was writing. And I feel like that's always a tension to struggle with. Something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, the fact that, that the people that I know from the field are theorists of their world as well mm-hmm. and, like, treating their work as theory mm-hmm. as opposed to theory to be translated into theory, right, mm-hmm. into the canon of theory that we know and work with. Yep. Uh, really change, changing in my writing and in my speaking and in my own mind the relationship between theory and data when, when your data is, in fact, mm-hmm. a theory of a world. Mm-hmm. Um and that's been really fun, and I, I am I'm anticipating some pushback, right? Mm, mm-hmm. But um, so far, it's been really generative, and I well received, I think. So, what? How do you feel like the theory? I won't use a word like folk theory. Um, yeah, because I, I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. But how do you feel like the theory that the people you're working with produce compares to the sort of high theory that? Anthropologists so produce? the article that you so generously plugged for me is um, it's taking on what I would say are pretty loud debates um, or like a pretty loud discussion within the environmental subfield on slow violence. And mm-hmm. There are some big names writing about slow violence and they're saying really interesting things and many of the things they're saying are kind of depressing. Like slow violence is hard to represent and it's hard to perceive and people who experience slow violence, mm-hmm. it's hard for them to act with intentionality about it. And in my field site, people are, I would say, who have experienced slow violence over a two to three hundred year period are theorizing new relationships between time and politics and actually treating time as an object of tactical manipulation. So rather than simply experiencing time as like a medium of vulnerability, like they're treating it as an arena of doing politics. And like that is a studied response to a condition Mm -hmm. that I think has something to say to a disciplinary debate. So that's one example. I mean, there are a bunch. Mm -hmm. and I just find that really exciting because those are exciting conversations to have. And you can have theoretical conversations with interlocutors without, like, you know, having mm-hmm. to call on co or something. <laughs> but I guess what, like, what do you think <clears throat> calling, like, calling it theory does for us, mm. right? Like, why do we need theory at all? Mm. Like, I wonder, like, could we have an anthropology? What, like, what does theory do for anthropology? And, like, I, I don't know. Like, cause mm. I totally, I 100% agree with you. People that we engage with in the field every day, like, have their, you know, conceptions of the world. And they're constantly analyzing mm. everything, and much in the way, like, the, you know, all the white guys we read and, mm-hmm. in, you know, mm-hmm. in our education programs are. But what is it? Like, what is really theory? You know, I'm like, yeah, sometimes yeah. I can stop, and I'm like, but what, but what is it? I mean, I feel like I've heard... Yeah, uh, anthropologists use it in different ways, just in this sort of offhand way. You know, I feel like I've heard people who I think have quite a complex, nuanced, thoughtful analysis of what they've just done turn around and say, but I still need to theorise it, or I haven't theorised this yet. You know, and they're implying that theory is this other this other realm of expertise right. that, uh, you know, that it takes a long time to master. Yeah. And, and that it's, it's exclusive. Yeah, I find mm-hmm. that question is easier to answer ethnographically than in mm, the discipline. Mm-hmm. Like, when I see my colleagues in the field theorizing, mm. it's easier for me to name that than mm. maybe what mm. we're doing. In the field, among the, the people that I work with, theorizing is when they step out of the day-to-day kind of attritional work of doing politics mm-hmm. and have, like, intellectual debates about the meaning of that work, mm. about the efficacy of that work, about... Um, ways in which people have done that work in the past and what has come of that. Mm-hmm. Um, when they when they like notice phenomena in their role and name them, 
um, and then put those categories to work. Mm. I mean, that's very analogous to what we do in a lot of ways. But, like, when they create a space outside of the everyday to think on, like, a meta level about what they're doing, like, that Mm. seems to me to be another kind of experience Mm. or interaction. Just a different, of a different nature. I always think of what Bell Hooks says uh, about learning to theorize at an early age because she needed to. I think she's she's talking about before university. She had to theorize mm-hmm. just to figure out why these things were happening to her and why they hurt so much. Yeah, and she needed an explanation, and it, and it was theory to her. Yeah, um, and that's something that she works with her students. You know, which is also a way of saying theory should do this work for you. Yeah, I think that's right. I wonder maybe I should ask you about your own theorizing then. Uh, I, I know a little bit about <clears throat> each of your work. And so maybe I wonder if I can ask you about your own theorising and also about the larger, the larger field of discard studies. Uh, and so the, the listeners at home may not know that I've invited us all together because we all work on uh, issues related to waste mm-hmm. uh, or detritus or debris or effluvia or excess, all of, these different, <laughs> all of these different ways of naming a thing which we can roughly draw together under the, under the word discard. Mm-hmm. So we all have that in, that in common as well as being anthropologists. So maybe can I ask, how do you theorise in your work and then how does waste help you theorise? So I I originally had a project that was not related to waste at all. I was working on NGOs in Bulgaria and Romani activism and social movements and the landscape of the social movements and this NGO sector had drastically changed from the period that I had done preliminary fieldwork in to when I went back after Bulgaria joined the European Union in 2007 due to funding changes. And the way I got involved with waste had to do with structures of urban visibility. So that was my first kind of question was why are Firstly, why are all of the people wearing fluorescent uniforms and, street, and sweeping streets speaking Romani? And why are why is it the only space in which Roma are highly visible in an urban setting mm-hmm. where you have a very, very large Romani population? And so kind of thinking about how visibility gets structured was like my first maybe big question. And uh, from there, I kind of developed this project that was about I didn't. I really didn't want to do a project that was about like identity politics, and I wanted to do something that was about practice. And I wasn't sure where I was going with it, but I was like, "What are people doing? Why? How does how does waste get managed within the city structure?" So it was very much about like urban space and waste management practices and how that overlaps with uh, racialized labor. And so that meant not only working with you know, Roma who were street sweeping and going through trash, but also other kinds of waste labor. For example, like the CEOs of waste companies mm-hmm. who are on a very kind of different side of like the spectrum and EU policy and municipal structures. And so I developed this like kind of multi-scale like approach to waste. Mm. So for me, it started with this intersection of visibility within the city and racialized labor. And that's how the project developed on waste. So I was never kind of just abstractly interested in waste mm-hmm. at all. And I was never considered myself an environmentalist. This, my heart and my like motivation was always related to kind of racial justice within a Bulgarian European mm-hmm. framework where race is still believed not to exist. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so then waste became like an avenue of looking at social practice. And in terms of theory, like I'm, I'm still like I'm still going through the debate of where the boundary of ethnography and theory is. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot about um, materiality and how something that is a social construct like race that has a very very real effects becomes materialized, and how can we trace that? And what mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the political ramifications of having a materiality of race? Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from like a lot of my own like political and social beliefs of of working in a place where I had to fight fight so often to even say that race exists and racialization exists within this context. Mm. Um, So that's kind of where I'm at. But in terms of what my theoretical contribution is, I'm still not able to separate that from my ethnographic contribution. Mm. And I don't know if I'm ever going to. I don't know that that's a problem. Mm. I mean, I I feel as if a lot of us are... Uh, and it comes back to the question of whether we call it theory or not. If theory is right. a sort of rarefied thing that uh, you have to do for years before you can call yourself a theorist, then maybe not. But then if theory is the kind of lived way that we make sense of the world, um, I feel like lots of us who do, do discard studies uh, didn't begin with a question of waste, just as you say. We yeah. began with other questions. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that we're watching processes of devalorization. We're yes. watching processes yeah. of exclusion and waste becomes a question that we have to ask. No, I mean, for, it was similar for me. Like, waste was never my object of study, but it's mm-hmm. something that kept asserting itself um, when I was trying to think about other things. So I work in a landscape in Baltimore City, South Baltimore. It's a late industrial landscape. Most people know it as the setting of season two of The Wire. So it's this waterfront factory right. town that's been dealing with industrial decline since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And in that show, it's described as a place where Stringer Bell's crew dumps bodies, mm-hmm. which is actually like a pretty apt metaphor for the ways in which this place is figured into right. the Baltimore imaginary. Mm-hmm. But it's a place that's managed multiple forms of risk since the 19th century, from mm-hmm. quarantining lepers and smallpox, yeah. victims mm-hmm. during the great wave of immigration to supporting nuclear deterrence with this Cold War chemical holdings. And there's like a, a slew of they're like what I would consider future-oriented risk management projects in this space mm-hmm. um, that have been taken on by multiple levels of government, city, state, um, and federal, and, and multiple private companies for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've always been interested in these like projects to intervene in the future from the present. And what waste has done in this place is kind of asserted itself as like. Um, you can't just abstractly think the future in this place because of all of the built-up remains of these previous mm. uh, attempts to do so mm-hmm. and, and the ways in which they they weigh on attempts to imagine and enact environmental mm-hmm. futures. Um, and so that's kind of the way that I've been thinking about, well, the, the way that waste kind of inhabits my site as like a foil mm-hmm. for concepts like risk, which present themselves in the literature as almost exclusively as issues of futurity mm-hmm. as ways to turn the future into an object of governance or to calculate things that are uncertain um, or to do things in the present that stave off you know futures that you're not into mm-hmm. um, my field site and this is why I, I agree that like ethnography and theory are so intertwined like it requires a reorientation of that understanding of risks temporality to account for the cumulative. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that that would be my theoretical contribution, but it's it is something that is only possible to think from my ethnographic and archival mm-hmm. materials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what anthropology does, right? We theorize from the world. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what good anthropology does. <laughs> right? There's plenty of anthropology that takes theory and applies it to the world. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to come up with new ideas that way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if I should ask you, because uh, I know part of your work is about how the futures are 
leveraged as a, a political reality. Yeah. Um, and you've used the phrase future as a political object in your work. Yeah. What does that mean to you? Well, it's a little bit about what I was talking about, how about yeah. how state projects in the place where I work have always been focused on the yet to come mm-hmm. and how to manage that. And often the effect of that is not attending to the like existing and protracted mm-hmm. forms of violence that have affected bodies in this region. So like toxicity is a really good example. Mm. It's uh, Toxicity is slow and it's it's not attended to with these future-oriented frames mm-hmm. that focus on, like, the to-be event mm-hmm. of, for example, uh, World War Three. Like, there's a lot of, like, Cold War mobilization planning going on in this space. Um, and in the process of doing that work, the kind of long-term less visible protracted forms of toxic accumulation, they don't, they don't fit in a future-oriented framework. I'm starting a project that I'm really excited about on vacant housing in Baltimore City, which in many ways like materializes Baltimore's long-term disinvestment and neglect of its, of its citizens. Um, and at this moment in Baltimore's political sphere, vacants are being reconfigured, not as symbols of protracted neglect, but as uh, climate risks mm-hmm. under like the field mm-hmm. of climate adaptation planning. So they become mm-hmm. obstacles to anticipated weather events. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in that shift. Here's a future-oriented project to prepare the city. It's like update infrastructure mm-hmm. um, to you know deal with weather events that we can expect to come with climate change. Mm-hmm. And in the process of turning to the future, all of the ways in which vacant housing materializes mm-hmm history and the history of a particular kind of like violent history mm-hmm. it just it goes away mm. so that i'm interested in those like temporal relationships mm, in my site in a number of different ways i feel like that could apply to a lot of realms where we're writing about waste where I waste think is that's, yeah that's so interesting because mm-hmm. i haven't dealt so much with this this idea of you know futurity but i'm my, my new project is about uh, nuclear power plant decommissioning oh, and like wow. I've just sort of started the preliminary ethnographic research so but this idea mm-hmm. you know what is the lifespan I mean lifespan it's like does it have a life nuclear I guess. Mm-hmm. waste is so interesting and, because of the, the time mm-hmm. yeah and you have this metal that gets decontaminated but it's all based on regulation it's decontaminated to a point and these things don't just go away the the lingering and the you can't your mind can't even like conceive of how long these things last Mm, mm -hmm. so it's like i'm now kind of thinking about that and what happened you know it's in some ways the kind of waste i was dealing with before was like this household waste nobody we never talked about toxicity that was never something that came up and the lifespan of waste was so contained and so knowable. And mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. thinking about well, nuclear waste and how do you know when it's you know when that waste is safe enough mm-hmm. and who can touch it and who can't? Mm-hmm. I mean, nuclear waste is so interesting to think with efforts to to think about like the symbols that will signify where nuclear waste is buried. This lifespan of its danger, its hazard qualities they outlive any human language or sign system. So, like, imagining how you will tell people, you know, tens of thousands of years in the future, like, not to touch this. Mm. I've I've read a little bit about that challenge, and it's so fascinating. Like, what a profound... To think about, like, how we have already created materials and generated wastes that determine our ability Mm -hmm. to sustain life 
more into the future than we have existed in the past. Like, and, that's just wild. And it forces us to think about sociality in mm-hmm. a kind of temporality. Across, which, yeah. Uh, yeah, millennia. I mean, sometimes Benedict Anderson talks about the nation as being this right. thing that's imagined to go on forever. But but in more embodied terms, it forces us to think about embodiment in a virtually infinite way. Yeah. What's always been so interesting to mm-hmm. me about waste is that it, I think it, it materializes a lot of these time questions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. time problems mm-hmm. and forces you to think with them. And it's especially interesting because the act of throwing things, something away is like you know, Josh Reno writes about this a lot, like, mm-hmm. it demonstrates a desire to not think about these problems and not think about these mm-hmm. insecurities is not quite the right word, but, like, the fragility of all mm-hmm. of this stuff. Um, this reminds me of uh, something you said earlier, and it might come back to this question of racialization too, uh, the notion that a wasteland is, amongst other things, a place where we dump bodies. <laughs> yeah. You know, metaphorically and sometimes literally. And I, I've, in my own work, found waste a way to talk about embodiment that sort of sidesteps some of the more intangible ways that we talk about identity, uh, subjectivity, and, and you know social personhood. So, uh, so I appreciated what you said at the beginning, where you wanted to find a way to talk about race without doing identity politics. Um, I hope that's not mis- no, 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 that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, I, I've been looking for the same thing too, and especially I write about homelessness, and I write about uh, you know the ways in which people are multiply excluded. People who are homeless are disproportionately people of colour, disproportionately queer, right. disproportionately disabled, and yet they're not homeless because mm-hmm. of all of those things, and yet of course they're homeless because of all of right. those things. Um, so how do we talk about mm-hmm. the process of exclusion? And and waste gives us a way of thinking about the hard embodied politics of, in this case, being relegated to the same spaces as trash. Well, so I think... I mean, this is something I've been working through in my work was I'm looking at this population that on a systemic level is really screwed over um, for centuries and it's getting worse with European Union accession all of these moments that could have been so potentially transformative in a positive way for Roma throughout Europe have actually functions to racialize them and in many ways like trashify them Roma have been deported from France you know and they're being further segregated into communities that into these totally segregated neighborhoods where infrastructure is further decaying so you know as time goes on things you know due to the elements and due to lack of state intervention just decay more and more but what i'm showing in my work is that is how waste also functions for many people to in their humor and in how Mm -hmm. they're dealing to get by because that's the thing they're not always thinking like I'm Roma I'm racialized how is this about my identity and how is this about my marginalization they're most of the time thinking about I gotta like feed my family I I gotta like, plan this birthday party I gotta get by mm-hmm. and so how does waste also function as a vector of of transformation that may be in some ways hopeful and transformative not mm-hmm. always people are in trash and therefore they're they are trash and that's where the project started and mm-hmm. what happened was you know throughout the research as it always is you kind of have these at least I had these ideas of what I thought I would see but in practice I laughed a ton like my research I had a great time doing research because mm. the people I was working with had just a great sense of humor about what they about the conditions they were living in which they were had very like intense meta commentary about but also like they were able to 
make the best of what they were in. And so I'm also looking at how Waste enables those kind of transactions as mm, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that's very important to me too. That, yeah. that there's, and I, I think a lot of waste studies people have this kind of actual, uh, you know, zeal and, and optimism uh, that a lot of other people who do political work have kind of ground out of them. Yeah. You know, I I mean, t- yeah. In Baltimore, absolutely. I see this more with the, the vacant housing stuff. But, like, mm. if for the city, vacants are climate risks. And for many residents, they're signs of proof that the city has abandoned them. Housing activists in Baltimore see vacant housing as the substance of imminent critique and an opportunity for transformation. So you talk mm-hmm. about homelessness. Mm. Baltimore has, like, 40,000 vacant homes. And at any given night, 3,000 homeless people. Mm-hmm. So housing activists are like, look here. Like, in our waste, we have this beautiful opportunity to change the way in which which we do land and ownership and, and housing for residents. So um, it's been really a fun place to think about how one object mm. can mm-hmm. sustain political possibility and and not mm. depending on your orientation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've sometimes talked about the um, the possibilities that grow out of that as abject economies. Mm. Also, I'm suddenly looking at the time. Can I just ask where you're going? Tell us very quickly what your next step is. I am going to meet a friend and colleague of Anthropology of Bulgaria, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to spend the night going to receptions and enjoying <laughs> life a little bit. That's what we do at the AAA. Uh, I, uh, I, it's my job market year, so I'm actually going to not enjoy my AAA. I'm going to prepare for an interview, but this evening I'm going to a workshop called Anthropology and Environmental Futures. How do we write the present? And so I'm really excited because this is the stuff I've been thinking about and talking about over the last 30 minutes or whatever. So that's really fun and it's over dinner. So that I'm excited about. That's great. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This uh, was really fun. Yeah, yeah. And we'll look forward to seeing you in Australia sometime. Oh, yeah. That'd yes. be great. Okay. Anytime. Thanks a lot. This has been another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. This time live, pre-recorded, at the American Anthropological Association meetings in Washington, D.C. We've been speaking today with Ilana Resnick from the University of California at Santa Barbara and Chloe Armin from George Washington University. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can find them online at ilanaresnick.com. That's E-L-A-N-A-R-E-S-N-I-C-K.com and chloearmin.net. That's C-H-L-O-E-A-H-M-A-N-N dot net. And if you'd like to learn more about anthropology, you can find me and my Deacon colleagues at blogs.deacon.edu.au slash anthropology. Mm-hmm.